Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here. Welcome to Iron Radio. Probably sounds a little bit different since I'm the only one here with our guest. Uh, Lonnie's busy doing an academic conference, I believe, and I don't know, Phil's probably running around punching different people, practicing boxing, and I don't know what Dr. John Mike's doing, picking up stones or something. So uh, I'm here today with Greg Knuckles. Say hi. Hey. And... We're going to talk about a cool, wide variety of different topics, probably a fair amount on muscle and strength and hypertrophy, but wanted to get this episode out to you since I believe the whole time Iron Radio has been out, we have not missed a single episode per week, which is pretty crazy for over six, maybe it's seven years now. Um, so so wanted to welcome That's, that's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah, I know that, I, that was the thing when Lonnie started it. He said that we're gonna they're gonna do it and it's gonna be consistent. And I know him and uh, Phil have pretty much hit that every single time. I can't think of a time that they missed. So yeah, kudos to them. That's crazy. It is. Yeah. So you want to say your name and where you're a little bit of your background for people maybe living under a big stone somewhere and don't know who you are? Yeah. Um, my name is Greg Knuckles. Uh, I have a degree in exercise science. I live in North Carolina, um, and I, I like picking up heavy things, and I'm reasonably good at doing so. Um, occasionally I write about picking up heavy things, and my 9 to 5 is helping other people get reasonably good at picking up heavy things. So there's there's a lot of of, uh, of heavy things just being picked up around my life, and that's uh, that's the way I like it. It's fun. Nice, and he's got a big heavy beard too that he picks up all the time. So he's oh, it's, uh, it's it's actually shorter now. I'm I'm trying to to oh. have a slightly more professional appearance. I don't <laughs> I don't know what I, I don't know what I think about that, but whatever. Less, less backwoodsy. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's weird. Like my my wife my wife likes the she likes the beard, but she doesn't like the crazy beard. Um, but yeah, like all men in my family have beards. I grew up in the middle of the woods. It just it just seemed right. It just felt right in my soul. But whatever, being a respectable member of society now, I guess. Eh, I think that's a little overrated, but. <laughs> You can put the little Elmer's glue and have the little old school strongman mustache there. Oh, that would be fantastic! Actually, <laughs> that, that brings me much chagrin. I have a really weak mustache. Like that's, <sighs> it's okay though. It's okay. the The beard makes up for it. It's yeah, good... I was gonna say. I think the the beard more than makes up for it. So you know, you'll be all right. Kind of pulls attention. Yeah. So sort of like uh sort of like Tom Cruise like. 
his his face just looks so good that no one notices he has a tooth directly in the middle of his face. <laughs> but now now that you know that, every time you see him, you're not going to be able to notice anything else. Oh, I'm not going to be able to, to. I can't get it out of my head. Right, it's one of the things you can never unseen again. Right, absolutely. Cool. And then do you work as a trainer at a, a gym or are you doing primarily online stuff now or what are you doing during the day? You said you were training. Uh, right now, just online. Um, we've been moving around a pretty fair amount the last few years, um, college and then back home. And then uh, my wife, Lindsay, had a job in Orange County, California. So we were there for a while and then that was a horrible job. And so we moved back from Orange County we loved it, but it was super expensive. Um, so now we're back in North Carolina, and we're planning on moving somewhere else, probably for grad school. Um, so yeah, I, I just uh, I want to get back to training people in person. That's what I really, really like to do. Um, but I just haven't been in one place long enough in a while to do that. Yeah, cool. And I know you have some very impressive lifts. So do you want to give your stats, and so I'll force you to brag on yourself a little bit here oh god that's what i was hoping to avoid um <laughs> so i've squatted uh 725 without knee wraps 750 with um i've benched 435 is my best in a meet i've done 475 in the gym um and i pulled 710 in a meet and 725 is my best in the gym nice very impressive all, all, all in kilos Alan Kilos. <laughs> Even more impressive. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, and you said your undergrad was in exercise physiology, correct? Exercise science? Yep. And where was that from? Uh, Harding University. Okay, where is that? Uh, Searcy, Arkansas. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Very nice. And for people who want to read more about you, they can find that. What's the address for your blog there? Uh, stringtheory.com, um, spelled like string theory, but with an E instead of an I. People say strength theory. And in hindsight, I should have seen that coming. Um, but you only get one opportunity to make the name of your business a pun. And so I had to go for it, but no one, no one understands that it's a pun. So <laughs> it's, it's okay. If you say string theory, I won't be mad, but it's, it's stringtheory.com. All right. And right before we got on the air, we were talking about that you may have something coming up as a blog post when, by the time this comes out, or you may not, but you did a, a lot of <laughs> really interesting work looking at hypertrophy and looking at sort of what is the, I hate the word optimal, but people kind of know what it means, but what is sort of the optimal amount of work or reps they should do? Do you want to talk about that? Can, can I first just comment that I liked you before, and now I like you even more. Now <laughs> I know you also hate the word optimal. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> oh, I how 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 do you optimize a biological system? Like how? And if you got to optimal, how would you even know? Yeah, and that's whenever I do seminars, usually I have a last slide, and I'm like, and here's what I think of optimal, and it's a picture of like you know pots of gold at the end of the rainbow, and there's like a leprechaun and. There's one of those jackalopes, you know, little animals that have like the horns on them that don't exist. Um, cause it exactly that it's that if, if you came to me and said, okay, here's $2 million, I'll provide you time off. I'll give you the lab, everything. 
and I want you to find the optimal thing for muscle hypertrophy from just a training perspective, you can't do it, right? I mean, you can say, have you test protocol A versus protocol B? Cool. I can tell you, you know, which one is better. Any researcher could. But there's no way you can ever say that this is optimal for hypertrophy or strength. This, this, is, this is the best. It's not going to get any better than this. This is the right. top of the mountain. Right. Right. So I do. I understand what people mean when they, they say it, but it, I think it perpetuates the sort of program hopping and people looking for magic bullets and secret things because they're, they, it's like they don't want to start sometimes until they find this optimal thing. And mm-hmm. then they're going to be sorely disappointed once they do it and that kind of kills their motivation. And anyway, so. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree 100%. Um, but yeah, anyway, the, the thing I'm working on. Um, so I have, I have a really... Most people, most most people would call it a bad habit for whatever reason. My readers seem to like it, um, but I have a bad habit of intending to write something pretty short, and then one question leads to another question instead of an answer to the first question, and then so on and so on, and then it just kind of snowballs out of control. And so that happened, and hopefully the result is going to be um, pretty cool. I think um, so. People talk about. Uh, like the optimal rep range for hypertrophy. And, you know, the I think everyone has heard like 8 to 12 reps per set is mm-hmm. best for hypertrophy. Um, sometimes down to as low as 6, sometimes as high as 15, but that, that, general, that general area. And so I basically wanted to see, um, is, is there any support for that? Um, and if so, how strong is that support? Um, and if it's reasonably robust, how, how much better could you, or should you expect that rep range to be even lower or higher? And so, uh, I went and tried to find as many studies as I could. So I, I looked at, um, all of the reviews on muscle hypertrophy and mind studies from those and PubMed searched and Google Scholar searched and searched some other databases and I think I have all or at least most of the studies that have looked at this, including like a master's thesis that hasn't even been published yet. So Ooh, nice. pretty thorough. Um, and so then I split it out. Um, and, and this wasn't just all studies that measured hypertrophy. It was studies that specifically were comparing two different rep ranges. Um and uh, another little stipulation I put on it is that all sets had to be taken to failure or close to failure. Mm. So um, one uh, one issue with some studies is uh, volume matching. So yeah. this is especially true um, for like moderate rep training versus really high rep training. Um, if you match volume, generally that's then going to mean Um, you're taking the moderate rep sets to failure and you're stopping, um, the high rep sets a long way from failure, or you're doing a lot fewer sets of high reps. Um, so, you know, if you're training at 80% or something, um, probably somewhere around eight reps is going to be as many as you can do, or somewhere in the neighborhood of as many as you can do. If you drop it down to 40% of your one rep max, like 
a set of 16 is going to be super easy. So um, there were a few studies like that that I left out. There were two by uh, Tanamoto, and uh, then there was one other one I had to exclude because I was looking at pre and post differences. Um, and uh, both groups, their pre measurements were pooled together and treated as a covariate, so I had to ignore that one. Um, but there were, I think, 16 studies left uh, and 23 different comparisons within those that I could look at. And yeah, so basically I looked to see uh, how how much more jacked did people get <laughs> each group. Um, and then I did some calculations to try to adjust for different number of sets in different protocols. So, uh, for example, there was a study published from Brad Schoenfeld last year um, with one group doing seven sets of three and one group doing three sets of ten. So um, trying to normalize for some differences like that in a few studies. And uh, so I looked at percent differences and effect size differences. And this is way too long of an intro. Um, <laughs> That's all right. But basically what I came up with is that um, kind of that hypertrophy, <coughs> that hypertrophy range um, may be a little bit better for muscle growth um, than higher reps or lower reps. But really the difference is pretty small. So maybe like 20% difference uh, when you equate for number of sets at most. Um, and it's really not a very uh, reliable effect. Hmm. So there were quite a few studies that reported more muscle growth for low rep training than moderate rep training or for high rep training than moderate rep training. And it seems that it seems that on the whole, yeah, that hypertrophy range may be a little bit better than higher reps or lower reps, but it's not, uh, it's not the type of like big robust advantage that people seem to expect. Um, and yeah, so I'm I'm excited about uh, about this being published, so people can bicker about it. <laughs> and what I thought was cool is that you've got a, a chart that shows on the left side, if, if people can imagine, there had some muscle hypertrophy as a percent increase. And then on the bottom, you've got the amount of reps per set, and it was pretty interesting that most of them generally clustered closer than what I would think. Right, so kind of what you said is. My guess is that I would have expected to see a little bit more variance from one to the next, and they're pretty tightly associated with each other, mm -hmm. which would yeah. mean in English that, like you said, there wasn't as much difference as, as what you would expect. Yeah, they they tend to cluster somewhere around um, various measures of muscle size increasing about 10% over the course of the study, um, anywhere between 5 and 20% or so. Uh, and that that's basically true regardless of rep range. So if someone is listening to this and they're like, ah, I want to get, get jacked, I want to do more hypertrophy work, based on the analysis you've done here, what would be your sort of parting words or we're not done with the interview, but what would you recommend them to, to do? Um, I think I think instead of worrying about necessarily what rep range you're training in, I think the more important thing is just um, finding kind of the range for you where you can get uh, the most high quality work in without just getting worn down and feeling like a pile of garbage. Uh, and for some people, that'll be kind of tending towards slower reps. For some people, that'll be kind of tending towards higher reps. 
Um, in my experience with my own clients, and so these tend to be powerlifters, so they have more experience with low rep training. Uh, for most of them, that tends to be somewhere between like three and eight reps per set or so. That's that's just what I've seen in general. Um, but also, on the other hand, uh, we were talking about this a little bit before we went on the air. Um, since hypertrophy, since muscle growth is triggered via um, several different pathways, depending how you want to parse it out, two or three different pathways or an absolute crap ton of different pathways, um, <laughs> you probably shouldn't neglect anywhere with, within the entire continuum. So, you know, if, if you find you do better, if you find that you can get in the most, you know, just high quality sets within that hypertrophy range, um, you should probably still do some lower rep work, you know, sets of three, five, whatever. Uh, and you should probably do some higher rep work. So, you know, bust out some good old pump sets of 20 or 30. And everyone loves doing that for curls in the first place. Like (laughs) people say they don't and they're lying. Like I, I can't wrap my head around not liking doing high rep curls. You just feel so good afterwards. Um, but yeah, so, uh, Find that rep range where you can just get in the most high quality work. Um, not necessarily worrying about volume load. That's that's another thing. Um, people get hung up on volume load a little bit too much, I think. And even within that, just like general hypertrophy range, um, you can see how volume load can be a little bit misleading. So um, just in general, if you're doing sets of eight, that'll probably be somewhere around. 75% of your max or so, you know, leave a couple reps in the tank on the first set and last set pretty darn hard. Um, and sets of 12 would probably be uh, somewhere around 65% of your max or so. So um, you can you can do these numbers for yourself. You, you know, let's say your max is 200 pounds and you're doing four sets of eight at 75% versus four sets of 12 at 65%. Um, there you would be doing roughly 30% higher volume load with sets of 12 than sets of eight. Um, it would be, I, I only know this because this article I'm writing, these were the actual numbers I used. Um, but it would be 6,240 pounds of volume for the sets of 12 versus 4,800 for the sets of eight. Um, so yeah, like you would, you would automatically assume just looking at volume load that higher reps were necessarily better. Um, but I don't think anyone's going, at least I've never heard anyone argue that sets of 12 are going to be dramatically better than sets of eight. You know, that's in that sacred hypertrophy range after all. Um, so yeah, not necessarily looking at volume load, but just the number of just high quality sets that are pretty high effort, uh, put most of your attention there and then, you know, still spend 25, 30% of your training time, training volume, focusing on either uh, sets of reps lower than that or higher than that, just so you're not missing out on anything across the entire continuum. And don't don't kind of confine yourself to one particular rep range um, just because some somebody told you that it's the best because there's really no robust evidence that that's the case. Yeah, and I would say that's probably one of the bigger areas I've trained my own personal training and just the clients I work with too is that many years ago I think like what you said I was very much oh this is a pure hypertrophy day this is this this is that and I think I tried to 
force people too much into one area, right? So a power mm-hmm. lifter would come and say, I want to get stronger. So if you follow the said principle, you're like, okay, let's do strength work every day. And mm-hmm. you fast realize that most lifters can't handle that, even though it may be the most specific for their goals. So I was like, oh, crap. So then I started doing adding some hypertrophy work to it. I'm like, oh, wow, they seem to have gotten better. Oh, wait a minute. And so then I think it takes a while to get sort of deprogrammed from the Delorme 3 by 10 for everything that you read in every fitness magazine growing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know when I look back on my own training, I was stuck in the three sets and I read an article that said, oh, you could do four sets or five sets even. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. You know? <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, looking back, you're like, well, yeah, you know, it seems to make sense. But I think it's very easy for us to find things to justify staying in this sort of small pool of variable, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some truth to that. But like you were saying, it's I don't think it's that clear cut. You know, if I go all the way back and go, well, why are we doing this? What at, at a real basic primitive physiologic level, I think the body is just designed to survive and it'll do everything possible to survive, you know, mm-hmm. and that's probably why almost tons of stuff works, right? At at some point, your, your body is going to be adapted to it and you need to do a little bit more or different to get a positive adaptation then too, so. Yeah, no, I I agree entirely. And you had mentioned, I think, when we talked to you before about looking for even strength gains, that uh, hypertrophy was actually pretty associated with uh, strength. Because I've worked with a couple of powerlifters, nobody recently, but in the past, and surprisingly, they were very reluctant to do any hypertrophy work at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But Everybody knows if you go to a meet or strongman or even Olympic weightlifting, they have weight classes, right? And the, <laughs> the bigger people are, they usually tend to put up bigger loads. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about the association between strength and hypertrophy? Yeah, so um, the the study I had in mind was by uh, – I'm, I'm horrible with names. I think it's uh, Baruka and Abe. I hope I'm pronouncing the first name right. Um, but so, so they were looking at people who were already highly skilled in the squat bench and deadlift. Um, so they took their data from USPF nationals and I think 2001, um, and basically they looked to see, uh, correlations between, uh, different muscle thicknesses and performance in the lifts and then, uh, total fat-free mass and performance in the lifts and fat-free mass per unit of height and performance in the lifts. And in terms of the prime movers, uh, we're talking, like, R values of, like, 0.85 to 0.93. Like, Very high. Yeah, like, super strong correlations between just, like, you know, how jacked your pecs are and how much you can bench. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, not just, like, kind of trivial, cor- very, very strong correlations between, like, pec or tricep thickness and how much you can bench, like quad thickness and how much you can squat, et cetera. Um, and then also fat-free mass per unit of height. Um, I need to go back to get the exact numbers again, but again, super strong correlations between just how much muscle you had per how tall you were and how much you could lift. Um, 
And so from there, you can uh, just develop equations to predict how much someone should be able to lift at a given fat-free mass per unit of height, um, assuming they're pretty good at the lift. So that's that's obviously the other variable. This was taken at a national championship where everyone was good at the lift. So you can be jacked and still suck at the squat, bench, and deadlift, and therefore not put up very big lifts. But if you're doing enough specific work that you're going to be a pretty good squatter, bencher, or deadlifter, then the main thing that discriminates better squatter, benchers, deadlifters from worse ones is just how much muscle they have. Um, and yeah, I think, oh, and so from there, uh, you can take those predictions and plug them into something that calculates relative strength. So not just how much you Mm. can lift, but how much you can lift relative to how big you are. Um, and without, like without fail, if fat free mass per unit height increases and your skill as a lifter either stays the same or doesn't decrease relative performance, predicted relative performance increases, And I've seen this with my own clients. So I've had like 40, 50 people um, come to me. I knew they were in too low of a weight class. They were like, oh man, like my performance between meets has been stalled for like a year or two years, whatever. And I'm just like, bro, that's because you're competing as a 165 and you're six feet tall. Like (laughs) that is your problem. And And they're just like, yeah, but the 181s lift so much more. And I'm just like, well, when you fill out to 181, you'll lift so much more. And so, like, almost always I get some pushback. But of the people who have come to me, I knew they needed to move up a weight class. And they were able to successfully move up that weight class, um, you know, putting on quality mass, not just getting super fat in the process. Uh, all except for one, their relative performance did increase. Like, not only could they lift more, but their Wilk score also went up. Hmm. Um so yeah, like there's a theoretical basis for it, looking at fat-free mass per unit height and how much people can lift and then just kind of extrapolating from there. And I've seen that in my own lifters as well. Like with only one exception, when someone could move up a weight class and do it well, not only could they lift more, but their performance in like their given weight class increased. Uh, that's very cool. I always think of it as kind of like a uh, like car analogies are always good. But if you've got a, a four cylinder car and you put the turbocharger on it, and I don't know whatever all they do to those kind of cars, mm-hmm. you're not going to compete with like a large V10 or V8. <laughs> you know, no matter how much tricking out you do of it, there's there's just only so far you can push the potential there. You know, so oh yeah, absolutely. And then also. I mean, you can you can look at this like even more simplistically, I guess. So uh, the average male, about forty percent of their body mass is muscle, um, and you know it's the muscle that's actually lifting the weights. You know, it's the nervous system telling the muscles how to contract in a coordinated way, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's those muscles contracting that's actually moving the load. So if you can if you can put on muscle and move up a weight class. Like if muscle goes from, if what's actually moving the weight goes from being 40% of how big you are to 45 or 50% of how big you are, you know, you have a larger proportion of your weight is coming from muscle that moves other weight versus, you know, bones, organs, skin, etc. So it also just kind of makes sense from that perspective. Like the larger percentage of your total body weight coming from muscle, you would expect relative performance to improve. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree with that. Okay, Dr. Lonnie Lowry here. We're just going to go for a break a little bit, and when we return, uh, we'll come back to the interview. Thanks. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Talking about hypertrophy and, you know, sort of the classic 3 by 10 and sort of the 8 to 12 rep range or maybe 12 to 15 rep range, I'd be curious to think where do you think that all started, right? I'm always curious as to how these sort of stories start and then sort of get kind of perpetuated. Well, I think uh, I think you hit the nail on the head when you brought up Delorme, like the classic three by ten. I mean, that was that was the first great resistance training study. So yeah, obviously a lot of stuff is going to be built on that, and then also. In kind of that general guideline I gave of just like see where you can get in the most quality work and not 
you know, not crap out within the session itself and not just feel like garbage between sessions. Uh, I find for strength athletes, that's a little bit lower than eight to 12 reps per set, but it wouldn't surprise me if in most people, like people who, who tend to focus more on, on that area, uh, or just, you know, new lifters, general population, whatever, it wouldn't surprise me if that is just the general rep range where that allows people to get in high quality work, not crap out during the session, which that, you know, that's a, that can be a drawback of both low reps and high reps. You know, you, some people, they get in two or three hard doubles and then, uh, I, I hate using this terminology, but just like their CMS <laughs> is shot. Um, so like that happens to some people with low reps, other people, they can do a ton of heavy doubles and they're fine. Uh, with high reps as well. I don't know anyone who can do like repeated high effort sets of like 20 rep squats and not just feel no. like, but yeah, so that's a, that's a drawback with, with high reps as well. So, um, you know, you may recover fine between sessions, but you crap out really, really early within a single training session. So, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if for a lot of people um, that hypertrophy range is just kind of the happy medium that lets them get in the most work. So it's like they they look at the causality different. It's not necessarily that they're making more progress because they're training in this rep range and there's something magical about that rep range. It's that that rep range just simply allows them to train harder than higher or lower reps do. Yeah, you mentioned the 20 rep squats, and I I think every guy at some point has probably tried that protocol, and uh, it's I did it once for, uh, I think I only made it six weeks, <laughs> and I hated every second of my life. <laughs> that it was so, horrible. I, I don't have many, like, I guess like hardcore stories uh, as, as you and your listeners may have surmised by this point, like I'm a pretty easygoing guy. Um, one of my only like hardcore gym stories comes from when I was focusing on 20 rep squats. So I wanted to squat four Oh five for a set of 20. That was like, uh, that was just, that was what I wanted to do. Uh, oh, one little aside before we get into this. Do you know who Joe Doobie is? I do not. So he was a super heavyweight American weightlifter in the 50s. Hmm. Uh, he won at least one world championship, actually beat Serge Redding at that world championship. And Redding was a monster. Hmm. Um, but yeah, he's, he's one of the great American weightlifters from the 50s. And... Uh, apparently, and there, there are multiple witnesses that attest to this. Apparently he squatted seven ten for a set of 17 reps, Whoa. which is ludicrous. That's insane. That's not even, that's not even a real number. Oh. Um, I, I, I try to do, so you, you, you've done, you've done a lot of, uh, metabolic work. So this, this will make sense to you. Um, <laughs> I tried to get just like a general idea of what like his work rate and caloric expenditure was when he was doing that. Um, I couldn't find anything to predict that for squats specifically. Uh, but there was a study, um, looking at deadlifts and I assumed squats are similar enough to deadlifts. Whatever, I'm not publishing this. I'll pretend that they're the same. <laughs> um, and 
God, I, I would need to go back, but it was something, it was something like the caloric expenditure within that set was like 230 calories or something. Oh. Like that. Um, yeah, cause, cause the, no, 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 it, it, it wasn't that high. It was like 140. It's still a lot for one yeah. set. Yeah. Um, the, the number, the number, it was, um, the original work was by Brown and then in terms of making it relevant to, like, relatively strong people, uh, S. Camilla did that. It was, like, um, four, four sets of eight and 175 kilos um, on average had a caloric expenditure of, um, like, right at 100 calories. And okay. so at 710, it's basically twice as much weight for half as many reps as they were doing. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's somewhere somewhere just above a hundred calories burned in one set, which you're talking you're talking about a work rate there that's incomprehensible. Yeah, and that gets back to your thing about doing high quality work and probably not doing much after that. I, <laughs> I gotta imagine. Yeah, but at the same time, Joe Doobie apparently loved high rep squats, and really, huh. it's hard to argue with someone who can yeah. squat seven ten for seventeen. But uh, anyway, so um, nowhere near that cool. I wanted to do 405 for 20. Um, And so I started at 315 and just started, you know, going up week by week. And it started getting just really, really shitty at about 365. (laughs) But I was was just like, the end is is in sight. That's only like 10% more weight. I can do that. (laughs) And so... um, I think like I reached spiritual enlightenment around rep 17. And then (laughs) after that point, it was just like an out of body experience. Um, You know, like you're like, you're blacked out, but you're still aware of what's going on around you. And like I finished and somehow I racked the bar and I woke up like five minutes later, just like in a little puddle of my own vomit. (laughs) And I was just like, yep, done with these. Oh. Uh, yeah, that, that was that was one of the most... It, it was That was an exaggeration. It wasn't five minutes. It was, I mean, it was probably like 15 seconds, but it felt like an eternity. And then it took like three hours for my heart rate to get back to normal. Oh. Like but that. yeah, I, I did not do accessory work after that, nor did I do a second set. <laughs> nor did I walk for like three days. Oh, it's like the, I remember Rob Wolf saying, it's like you're seeing the, the white buffalo in the sky. <laughs> that's a, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Uh, I, I did something brutal when I was in college, not anywhere near to that degree with, uh, unfortunately calf training, which unfortunately has almost the, the paradoxical opposite, right? <laughs> Cause your calves, you, you don't have much systemic, you know, fatigue to use a word associated with calf training, right? So I thought, oh, my calves have always been really tiny. I'm like, oh, I pulled out something from a magazine. Let's do this. And I don't know what it was. This is a drop set after stretch set and this and that. And, of course, I didn't have any progression to it. I just, you know, jumped in and did it. And I literally took me two weeks to walk, like, normal again. And I lived at that time on the third floor in an apartment. And so I had to pull my carcass up and down the stairs all the time and you don't realize how often you use your calves until you do something stupid like that were were, were you like uh were you really concerned you had compartment syndrome after that 
looking back on it now, I should have been. <laughs> that, uh, so one time, um, one time when like I noticed my work capacity wasn't where it should be, I was just like, let's remedy this in a hurry. So I did, um, I did blood flow restriction, leg press and calf raises. And, uh, so it was like, it was like five or six sets of 20 for each, oh. but, but without taking the wraps off between sets. Uh. And like, it, it wasn't, it wasn't that much weight. I mean, it was a leg press. It was like three or four plates per side or something. Um, but like, since, since Venus return is occluded, like mm-hmm. since that blood's not getting back into circulation, you have just like obscene amounts of like lactate and metabolic byproducts just building up in your legs. And so, like, you know, I was doing it, and I was like, yeah, I'm feeling the burn, but this isn't too horrible. <laughs> and then when I finished, and I took the wraps off, and all of that just hit systemic circulation, like, I felt like I was going to black out. And th- that wasn't fun, but here was the bad part. So that training session was at, like, 9 p.m. that night. And so I'd eaten dinner before I went to the gym. And I had beets. And <laughs> so, so then... <laughs> After that training session, the next time I had to pee, and it was like, and I was like dehydrated, so it wasn't like pink, it was like kind of like brownish, and I was just like, oh god, I have rhabdo, like I was, (laughs) I was, I was terrified, and then I was like, never mind, I ate beets, it's fine. (laughs) Give me the title of the podcast, is it Beets or Rhabdo? (laughs) Sometimes you don't know until the second pee. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If it continues, you got issues. Seek medical help ASAP. <laughs> and for listeners who are not familiar, so blood flow restriction is placing a cuff or some type of band or something around uh, the muscle. Usually it's done just for upper body or lower body. And like Greg was saying, that it helps stop some of the blood flow out, but not necessarily in. Um, there's some pretty cool studies. We're working on uh, getting Dr. Jeremy Linoki on here to to talk more about it. But it's um, it's one of those things. The first time I saw it years ago, my thought was, "That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life." You know, my big thought for years was that is this gonna you know harm you know tendons and other things and. You know, as the data has come out, there's been a lot more data on it now. There's been a lot more uh, safety studies. Mm-hmm. And I've actually kind of changed my mind that I, I think it can be useful. I mean, the data shows that uh, it can be equivalent for possibly strength gains and for hypertrophy as heavier lifting. I haven't seen any data to show that it's better or superior. Um, uh, there, there is. So, so not superior by itself, but in terms of... Um, additive effects. In addition, let me, yeah. yeah let me, so explain let me that. Right um, so there were there were two studies. Let me get the authors right fast. I'm I'm pulling this up. One was one was Yamanaka, and then there was another one that repeated the same uh, the same basic setup. Uh, come on, uh, Lubers. That was the other one. L e u b b e r s. Um, and so what these studies did is they were both done with football players, so pretty highly trained people in the first place. Um, and they had them do 
just their regular, you know, high intensity training. Um, and then, so one group just trained like they normally would one group trained like they normally would. And then they also added, uh, like three sets to failure with 20% of their one rep max. Um, and then another group did the normal training plus 20% of their one rep max for like three reps to failure with blood flow restriction. Oh, nice. And, uh, in both of those studies, the, um, the group that did just the high intensity training had the same strength gains and the same hypertrophy gains as the group that added, um, the light work without blood flow restriction. So it wasn't, it wasn't just the added volume that had the effect. So that one group that did it without the blood flow restriction as well, they had additional volume on top of the high intensity training, but they didn't grow anymore. They didn't gain any extra strength. But uh, in both studies, the groups that added the light training with blood flow restriction to their regular high intensity training plan, um, there were, I think there were small differences in hypertrophy, but nothing really to write home about, but pretty dramatic increases in strength. Um, mm over like six to eight weeks or so. So like 40 to 50% larger increases than uh, just the high intensity training. So that was, that was pretty eye popping. And I assume the theory there is that because of the restriction, you're targeting more of the fast twitch muscle fibers, even though the load is lighter, correct? Uh, yeah, that's, that's the idea. They do see higher EMG readings with uh, low-intensity blood flow restriction training than low-intensity training without blood flow restriction. Um, part of me just wonders if it's, uh, if it's like just a novelty effect. So, I mean, that's, that's the basic reason why, well, that plus fatigue management, but the basic, the basic reason why period of, periodized plans tend to produce larger strength increases than unperiodized plans, even though the hypertrophy effect is the same um, in general. So you can, you can find a few studies where there are hypertrophy differences uh, with different periodization models. But in general, muscle growth is pretty similar, but there, but there are pretty sizable strength differences in general. Um, and I really like, uh, do, you know, do you know who John Kiley is or Keeley? I don't. He, one second, I'm, I'm going to pull up another paper for you to put in your show notes. Um, he had a paper called Periodization Paradigms in the 21st Century Evidence-Led or Tradition-Driven. Mm, and, I like the title. Oh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and he basically said that when people talk about periodization, they, they focus way too much on kind of like the unproven and perhaps unprovable explanatory framework behind different periodization models when really when you're looking at it, when you're interpreting the data, um, I guess as, as like uh, conservatively and epistemically honestly as possible, really just what it shows is that some degree of variation tends to produce larger strength effects and too much variation tends to not be good. So I think, I think really what you're seeing with blood flow restriction is it could, it could be that it's targeting more of those uh, fast twitch fibers, but I think it could just be partially um, just that it's kind of a novel stimulus 
whereas just regular low load training isn't really that novel. And so, you know, it could just have um, just motor learning benefits. It's it's different enough that it causes you to learn how to do the movement a little bit better, but it's not so different that it is kind of like pulling you in a bunch of different directions, trying to learn a bunch of just like unrelated things, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that was when I was looking at the early research on it, I saw that there were some studies, like you mentioned, showed different uh, EMG or basically muscle activation. And my first thought was that I was hypothesizing that that may lead to a decrease in strength because in essence you're learning something different but studies after that haven't really shown that and like you mentioned have actually shown the opposite effect of that so i was pretty much wrong (laughs) which is okay oh it's it's well and really at this point it's it's too early to say for sure i mean we can say kind of where the evidence is pointing right now. Yeah. Also, in terms of looking at it from an additive perspective, there are only like two or three studies. So not exactly a massive body of literature to draw like robust definitive conclusions from. Yeah, and that's one thing in a couple of programs I had, one with a natural female physique competitor. Uh, We had her do a, a fair amount of blood flow restriction work just because you can get, like you said, possibly better adaptations, and the training's pretty short. You know, if you add, like, say, normally it was an off day, we'd add in, like, a, a superset of, I think we had her do overhead pressing and tricep press downs, I think, or something like that. Um, similar for lower body, I think it was just leg extensions and leg curls, you know, and it doesn't take very long, and it didn't seem to be a huge impairment in her recovery it didn't affect her training the next day or the you know after that either so Mm -hmm. yeah and then and that's the other cool thing about it um thus far it doesn't actually seem like it causes any muscle damage or a substantial amount of muscle damage which kind of makes sense because the loads you're lifting are so stinking light um but yeah so you know, you can kind of add it on top of something else and it's probably not going to make you really alter the other stuff you're doing. Like it's, it's not hard at all to recover from. Cool. We're getting close to the end. Any other tidbits of wisdom you would like to end part to our listeners? Um, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not good just going free form. Do you, do you have any other questions for me? The only other question I had is I heard you're a big fan of blueberries. <laughs> <laughs> it's a running joke. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, we uh we just we just ran out today actually cuz I I ate uh, like a a little bit over a quart yesterday. I love blueberries. They're so good. Um I I told my wife like half jokingly but mostly not joking that like how how I will gauge that, like, okay, I'm successful in life, I've made it, um, is when I can, like, plan out a diet and be able to, like, afford to get the majority of my carbs from, like, blueberries and apples. Nice. Like, rice or potatoes, but not now, because those, those suckers are expensive. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I love, I love blueberries. They're so good. No, it's an interesting point you mentioned about just tangenting a little bit is life goals i was thinking the other day i'm like huh i actually got chipotle twice this week (laughs) that's pretty cool and one of the days i actually got guacamole 
so I thought I I've made it now. <laughs> you would uh, you would love one of my friends, Alex. He's a gym owner in SoCal, and so like Orange County, that is oh, that yeah. is one of the best places in the world to eat. Um, like so many good restaurants, so many good breweries, uh, but the the only places he ever eats, like literally, I'm I'm not exaggerating here. The only places he ever eats out are Chipotle, IHOP, and Applebee's, <laughs> and for the most part, it's only Chipotle. So um, he, he was he was working like 14, 15 hours a day to get a gym off the ground at one point, and so you know when he was eating, he was just like sneaking out for quick meals, and he was also doing this while bulking, and so he was. Oh, eating- wow. He was eating four meals a day at Chipotle. Oh my gosh! For like five months straight. <laughs> no, and, and uh, he, um, his his fiance, like when they were talking about their wedding, like his only the the only request he had for the wedding was that um, was that he wanted it to be catered by Chipotle. That oh, was wow. that was the only request. I just thought that was fantastic. <laughs> That's that's a little bit much. I I have thought about just like how they had the Subway diet for a while. You could have the Chipotle diet, right? So you just don't eat anything all day. Don't eat lunch and just have Chipotle at night. And you just rinse and repeat the next day. <laughs> I mean, it, it would get the job done, I guess. I don't know. I mean, you'd be pretty close. I mean, you might be a little low on protein, but you get, you know, the double meat and, you know, your calories would be significantly lower. Hell, you could even get chips. Would that um would that help my metabolic flexibility? Possibly. You should you should publish a study on that. See if Chipotle would fund it. <laughs> I actually have looked at funding from other sources. Like when I did the energy drink study, I was actually trying to get Monster and some other companies to fund it, and uh, no luck. Um, Red Bull said they would be interested, but they weren't going to provide me anything for it. Red Bull actually has funded studies in the past, but yeah, possible. That's- I mean, was it because they thought that it was going to be like shed negative light on energy drinks or Well the bugger is if you think about it, right, if you're a monster, what is to your advantage to have a research study on your energy drink? Your market is people who don't give a crap about reading research. I can guarantee you that none of one well, very few in their market would probably ever read it. Um if it comes out however negative, <clears throat> the media loves negative studies, right? Yeah. So if it gets published, then it just makes you look bad, right? And a lot of work for your PR department and everything else. Um, plus, it gets into a little bit of a finicky thing of you want to make sure for anyone who's looking to do sponsored studies, always ask them who would own the data. Mm-hmm. And so same thing with supplement research, right? So say a supplement company comes in and says, hey, we want you to run XYZ study for us. If it turns out negative, they probably don't want that published. Oh, look, your supplement doesn't work. Oh, wait, we paid 125 grand for that. <laughs> yeah. And technically, as the marketplace is right now, they don't have to pay for any research, really. So <laughs> some of the companies who do it will then keep the data in house, probably not publish it. If it turns out that it is positive, then the company will want to publish it. And then you have the thing of if you're associated with that, explaining to everyone why you're not bought and paid and sold to the supplement company now. And a lot of times they don't, it's not like they 
pay you enough money, you're riding around in Cadillac Escalades for seven months while you do the study, you know? Yeah. You just get a study that's paid for. So there's like pros and cons to it. So I ended up just, after a few inquiries, I'm like, ah, screw it. I'm not going to worry about it. It's probably going to be a bigger pain in my butt anyway. Um, I had access to the lab. I had a $500 grant. And then um, I just bought Monster out of my own money from the grocery store. <laughs> sure. Well, and, and that that was that was like an acute study, right? So yep. it, it wasn't like you were buying like 35,000 cans of Monster or something. No, and that's the nice part was in, in terms of overall expense, really not that much money, you know. So it was like, ah, that's not worth messing with for sure. I gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much for being on Iron Radio this week, Greg. And remind folks where they can find more about you to read all your wonderful articles, which they actually are really good. If you're interested in more of a, a science-based uh, approach, I would highly recommend you check out his site. Well, thank you. And, and thanks for having me on. Uh, the site is stringtheory.com with a E instead of an I in the string part. Um and yeah, I, I have like a YouTube channel and stuff too, but I don't do anything on there. I, I don't like being in front of a camera. So it's, it's good. It's good. Videos. To, yeah. I, it, I always forget to clarify this with podcasts. Like, is it going to be like a video podcast or a, like a just audio only one time, one time I was doing a podcast and I thought it was going to be audio only. And it was like, it was after the gym and I was wearing just like, uh, like I'd taken my shirt off. So I was just wearing like, uh, just like an undershirt and it was just like drenched through. And, um, also here's the other thing. I didn't, I actually didn't even know it was a podcast. Like I thought, <laughs> I thought that I was, I thought that I was just like Skype calling a guy. And I looked back through our messages and like, he never specifically said it was a podcast. So like, I, I know I wasn't just dropping the ball there. And so, yeah, I thought it was just like Skype calling a dude wasn't a client or something. So like it was after the gym, I was drinking a beer. I was just like in a sweated through undershirt. And then like next thing I see it's on YouTube. And I'm just like, dang it. Did <laughs> That's that's not how I want to present myself to the world. But is it still out there? I dare to ask. Um, it's buried. It's, 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 it. it's not. I didn't I didn't like tell the guy to take it down, but I think he deleted his YouTube channel. Oh, there you go. You don't have to worry about it. All's well that ends with me not having that video on the internet. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the program. I greatly appreciate it, and I encourage people to go check out your site. Thanks for having me. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. Cool. Thanks, buddy. See ya. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for.
There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.